How's everybody doing tonight? We good? How many of y'all were in traffic on the way here? No? Yeah, yeah, there was a yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently traffic is really bad right now on 75 and LBJ, but I feel like that's what we call living in Dallas. Yeah. Um, in case you guys weren't here in the previous weeks, just a reminder, or if you're like me, you just forget people's names pretty easily. I am Nika Spalding, and this is Nathan Wagnon, and we'll be guiding this teaching time tonight. And Nate, if you want to go ahead and open us up in prayer. Sure. Hey, Nish, I feel like I'm, is my mic really loud? I feel like it is. I'm the blue one. Echo. Echo. Maybe lower that a little bit, yeah. Maybe we shouldn't stand near each other. Yeah. No hugs on stage. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son and what he has done for us. Thank you for your spirit and how your spirit uh, just illumines the text for us and how he empowers us to live the kind of life that we are created to live, um, both for our good and your glory. I pray that tonight would uh, just be a sharpening exercise, that, that uh, there would be uh, just extreme clarity um, through the content that we move through so that we might think rightly about you and uh, worship you as you are and not as we would make you. Um, just, Spirit, we invite you to this place. Um, just inhabit the, uh, this time and teach us. Um, we want to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If y'all were here the first week, you'll remember I referenced the American Bible Challenge. And then week <laughs> two, somebody brought me a shirt. So I feel like I'm one step closer to fulfilling my lifelong goals. Um, Tonight we're going to do interpretation. So if you remember last week we did observation, and that really asked the question, what do we see? Tonight we're going to ask the question, what does it mean? And this is really where the rubber meets the road in terms of pulling out the truth from the passage. We've been using that term exegesis, right, which means to pull out of. And so this is where we're going to show you some tools and tricks of the trade that help you to really extract the meaning. If you remember, we're building the bridge. And so using the metaphor that we, that we started on week one, there's their town and then our town. And in order to understand the universal theological principle or what it's always meant in all places at all times, that's where interpretation comes in. How can we walk across that bridge making sure that we know the timeless principle from the text. And so tonight, hopefully by the time you leave, you'll feel like you have some more tools in your toolbox that when you approach a passage, you can go, I know how to interpret this. I know how to walk toward this with confidence that when I walk away from it, I have a a sure and confident understanding of the text. And so I just want to say, you know, I've taught this class a couple of times. Nate has taught it many more times than I. And sometimes people go, golly, these are a lot of tools. And does this mean it's very difficult to understand the Bible? And I want to encourage you guys, many times when you're reading a passage, it means what you think it means. These are tools that whenever we come across what we'd call problem passages or maybe more difficult passages, or these are tools to illumine even more understanding the passage, but they're not absolutely essential all of the time to understand a passage. But if you want to be able to tackle the entire Bible and really tackle it with confidence, then we would say you'd begin to use uh, these tools in your toolbox. The ones that we're going to cover, if you read my email, um, although I was jesting, fellas, do not tell your woman she looks fat in a dress, but uh, there's background studies, which we're going to briefly talk about, context, 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 which you guys know from real estate, right? First rule of real estate, location, location, location. 
The first rule probably of interpretation is context. Mm -hmm. Cross-referencing, and so if you brought your study Bible, Nate's gonna be able to walk you through that and show you how to use that tool. Word studies and then validations. And so this is, of course, an hour and a half, and we're taking you through five, five things. So if we're moving too quickly, if we're not understanding something, feel free to throw your hand up and ask us to slow down. Um, but really, this is a 101-type class. And so if, you, if we scratch an itch or we touch on something that you want even more information, let us know. Shoot us an email because there's even more um, tools within these subsets that we can help walk you through. And so, without further ado, we'll jump right into background studies. Since we have to make the bridge between their world and ours, it helps to understand their world much better. That's what we mean by background studies. We mean, what was it like when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church? What was it like when Moses wrote to, to the Israelites coming out of bondage and captivity. That's what background studies are. Um, they help, the Bible handbooks are very helpful. There's one on your sheet that we highly recommend, and it's the Baker Illustrated Bible Handbook by Danny Hayes and Scott Duvall. And so if you bought that interpreting the Bible booklet, the little green one that we've been selling, or is it blue, are we selling the blue ones? The book that we're selling, it's the same guys, and so they understand how to, how to read and interpret the Bible, and so they have a really great book if you wanna start somewhere. And so an example of how this works, um, you might read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and the very first verse is, wives, submit to your husbands, right? And that is so fun for us to read as women, and I'm sure husbands <laughs> love it even more, and they probably take their wives to that, and they're like, I told you, re-engage hasn't said it yet, but you're supposed to submit. No. Um, and then it goes on, and it says, and everybody stops, right? Everybody stops at that passage. They think it's so controversial, and they go, the most controversial thing in this passage is that Paul would tell wives to submit. And they don't even go on to read that husbands should love your wives. And actually, in the first century, when Paul wrote this, the most controversial thing that Paul probably wrote was husbands love your wives. So if you get a Bible handbook and you begin to understand the culture of the first century, you can appreciate the fact that during this time, women were actually second-class citizens. They were not really objects to be loved. They were objects to own. They were objects to master. And in fact, Paul is borrowing a Roman code, a household code. Back then, husbands were commanded to make your wives submit. And notice how revolutionary different this is in the Bible. Rather than telling a man to make your wife submit and use whatever force is necessary to do that, Paul is commanding husbands to love their wives. In fact, this is one of the most freeing verses in all of the New Testament for women during that time. And if you were to go on and look up the word submit, it, it's, it's nuanced with all of the languages in our culture right now of this really negative or inferior thing. But really, it's a word that just means to be a helper, to be a supporter. And it's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit whenever he's helping Jesus in his temptations and things like that. And so really, when you look at this passage, if you were to take all of our you know, 21st century or, or Dallas, Texas 2014 culture and apply it to this text, it seems rather chauvinistic. But when you begin to understand the world in which Paul wrote, you begin to go, it seems to me that Paul is asking women to be a support to their husband, and he's asking husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so it's a big calling. And so these are things that are going to help you um, begin to understand some of these problem passages that, uh, as my boss Blake Holmes likes to say, I like to bring the controversy. And so I went with that one. But another example that Nate's going to walk us through is John 6. Yeah, and before, you, uh, before we move on, I, um, this just came to my head. So um, Deuteronomy as well, uh, chapter 21, is, is interesting because it talks about... Uh, uh, going, Israelites going to war and what they were to do with the captives that they 
conquered, right? So a lot of times you'll hear past, uh, people bring up the whole idea of slavery and, you know, hey, look, this is unjust. Look what's going on. When really the, the commands that the Lord gives to the Israelites were um, the captives that they took um, from, from the people who were conquered, they were to make them their, their slaves, which it's clear in Deuteronomy that that's the case. However, there's a lot of baggage that we're bringing to the table when we think of the word slave, right? As soon as we say slave, we immediately think of like the antebellum South, right? I mean, the, the injustice that happened with slave trade, that sort of thing uh, back in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, However, in Israel's society, the, um, a slave could actually become part of the household. And, and sometimes we're even like given in marriage. And if you're given in marriage, then you, are, you gain the full rights and protection of your husband, right? And so for societies like this, the commands of the Lord are giving to that society in that time really served as a protection for the people they were conquering, not a restriction of them. Does that make sense? And so just doing a little bit of background study like that um, just illumines the text, and you're like, oh, I mean, um, it, it's, it's not as problematic as a lot of times uh, people, people think that it is, all right? So um, going, uh, moving forward to uh, looking at context, so turning your Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Who brought your study Bible tonight? Did y'all get that email, brought a study Bible? All right, all right. you guys can get a snack out front. Yeah, we're... Uh, <laughs> We're definitely going to be uh, using uh, your study Bible a lot tonight. <clears throat> but John 6, 14 and 15. John 6 is a really long chapter, by the way. <laughs> but uh, Jesus uh, shows up on the scene and uh, feeds 5,000 men, probably more people than that, um, with uh, five, five loaves and, and two fish. And then uh, immediately after that, they, they gather up the pieces into like 12 baskets, which is crazy. And then in verse 14 and 15, it says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is always a really interesting passage because you're like, okay, yeah, obviously he, he does something miraculous. He's feeding people with five loaves and two fish. But why in the world would the people come and grab him and take him by force to become their king? Right? I mean, I, I guess it's like, well, hey, just work a miracle and you, go get, you get to go to the White House kind of thing. Um, when, when, when you understand the background of what's going on, then uh, you guys remember the first week someone asked about the intertestamental period and the Apocrypha, right? Some of the pseudepigraphal, pseudepigraphal writings that were written during that time, uh, um, apocryphal books. And, and uh, we just happened to have a couple of them that shed insight. Again, those things don't exist for us to build doctrine on them, but they do help give us kind of a window into that world so that we can understand this background material. So one of them is 2 Baruch 29.8, which is a pseudepigraphal work from the second century BC. And it says this, and it will happen at that time. Uh, and what the, the context of 2 Baruch is talking about uh, the day of the Lord, the, the consummation of time, the end of the world, right? Or for them, the coming of the Messiah, who was going to establish, reestablish Israel. And it will happen at that time that the, the treasury of manna, remember, remember what manna is in, the, in Exodus? Right? This, this like bread-like substance that God puts on the ground every morning for the people of Israel. Literally, the word uh, manna in Hebrew means, what is that? 
That's literally, that's literally what mana, mana means. So what is it? Um, so it will happen at that time. The treasury of, of manna will come down again from on high. Again, an allusion to the Exodus. And they will eat of it in those years because these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time. And so in, in an Israelite's mind, you have the first Moses, who was the greatest prophet in all of Israel's history. By far, Moses, right? And, and, and he's attributed to feeding the nation of Israel when they're out in the desert. And so what, what this uh, pseudepigraphal writing is saying is there will be another one who will come and will, uh, when he shows up and he rains down bread from heaven, then, then you'll be at the consummation of time. Then that will be, it, it, this is a messianic illusion, right? There's another passage, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, which is a, a part of the Mishnah, um, which is a, a Jewish text. It says, as the former redeemer caused manna to descend, again, Moses, who was the redeemer who took them uh, out of Egypt and redeemed them from the oppression of, of the Egyptians. As the former redeemer caused manna to descend, as it is stated, behold, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you, Exodus 16. So will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend, as it is stated, may he be as a rich cornfield in the land. In other words, one who's producing food, okay? So these are both messianic type texts that are written in that intertestamental period that, that sheds light on the expectation that the Israelites had about somebody who shows up and rains down bread from heaven, right? And, and so be, because these are messianic expectations and the expectation of Israel, of Israel was that just like David was our king, there will be another king that will, will perform the same type of acts that Moses did in the Exodus. Well, Jesus comes along in, in John 6 and what does he do? He rains down bread from heaven, right? I mean, uh, literally what it looks like is, well, give me five loaves and two fish and watch this, right? Um, and, and so he is doing the type of things that are associated with their Messiah. So now all of a sudden, when you get to John 6, uh, 14 and 15, the phrase, they wanted to take him by force and make him their king, now all of a sudden this has a lot more meaning to it. Do you see what I'm saying? And so it's helpful, it's helpful as we do these things to, to delve into background, to delve into, hey, what were these people thinking at that time when this happens so that when we read these texts, it's not something we just gloss over like, oh, they tried to make him their king. Well, okay, I guess, whatever, you know. Now we're like, no, I get it. I get the cultural setting. I get the background of what's going on. And I understand the implication of what Jesus is saying by his work, namely, hey, I am the Messiah, Right. And, and, uh, and it goes on from there. Okay? Yeah. You may be asking yourself, how, how then do we come by this information? And so in your hand Read a lot. Here, um, <laughs> yes, you, you read a lot is how you do it. Uh, and so, again, the first one is the one we put in your handout, the one-pager. The rest of these on your notes um, are just, they're just great. They give you just insight into what the world was like then. The uh, introduction to the New Testament, Carson and Moo, and then the introduction to the Old Testament, those go book by book and just give you an idea of um, the kind of audience they were writing to and all the background information that's pertinent, key words, key phrases, key ideas. And so uh, if you have a free Saturday, it's the fall now, so I know that there are no free Saturdays, boomer sooner. Mm. But um, mm. when the spring mm. comes back around, you can do that. All right, moving on to context, context, context. Um, 
This is probably a lot of times when you're going, man, what does this mean? So many times it's because people have taken a verse out of context and they're trying to interpret one verse without having any clue where the verse is in the chapter, where it is in the paragraph, and so on and so forth. And so what you want to do when you're analyzing a verse or or a chunk of verses is you want to go, just like it says here, from words to sentences and so on and so forth. Um, If you see beyond paragraphs, that word right there is pericope. It's a fancy word that they use all the time in seminary, um, so often that I thought it was a common word, and so I came to Watermark, and like the first three months, I would use it all the time, and my boss thought I was mispronouncing periscope, and so I was like, oh, no. So anyways, that's pericope. That's how you say that, and what that is is uh, you know how your Bible is broken up, and you've got paragraphs. Well, there's a whole story that sometimes will be multiple paragraphs, and so the woman at the well or something like that, and so an entire chunk or a unit is known as a pericope, and then you've got chapters books and testaments and so on. And so an example of how this would apply is we take this verse all the time. And I am, I am guilty of this, okay? This is why I chose this verse because I have used this in this way. And so when somebody comes to you and goes, man, I'm just, I'm just struggling with purity in, in this certain relationship, and you go, hey, keep away from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faithfulness, love, and peace in company with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so people use this verse as a verse to talk about sexual purity. And then you back it up and you read the full context, and especially here in the red, so that verse is followed by, reject foolish and ignorant controversies because you know they breed infighting. And the Lord's slave must not engage in heated disputes, but be kind toward all. An apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his will. Is sex mentioned anywhere in there? No. Right, And so Paul is writing his letter to Timothy, and he's giving him instructions as a pastor. And this is the part in the book, in 2 Timothy, where he's going, hey, stay away from those wives' tales. Stay away from the quarrels. Stay away from the people who would argue about the faith. If you read throughout the New Testament, you'll see people are quarreling quite a bit in the early church. And Paul's going, hey, buddy, don't get involved with that. And I don't know if y'all are around young men. I, I am. They like to fight a lot, right? And so really, this verse is to grab all of your guy friends who think, because they read like one book by Greg Kokel, they think they're an apologician, right, an apologist. And, you, and you're like, really, you've got to stop arguing on Facebook. Like, you have got to stop picking <laughs> fights. Um, like the ice bucket challenge, y'all know what I'm, right? And I saw an argument today where people were arguing about whether or not it was ethical to do the ice bucket challenge. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so apropos for what I'm teaching tonight. So context, context is key. This is a really easy passage when you look at it and in its context you go, this is not talking about the lust of the flesh. This is talking about the desire for young, young men and I would argue young people in general to engage in a fruitless conflict within the church. And so this is just another example that when, when you are interpreting a passage, context is almost always gonna rule the day. It is key to what you're doing. And so when people read the passage, and we use the example like Philippians 4.13 on the first week, where I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and you back it out, and you read the entire paragraph, and it's all about contentment. And so you can argue, hey, LeBron James might win, you know, like the, I don't know, some horse race as a jockey, and you're like, really, 6'8"? Like, really? Is that what God's talking about? Or, hey, I'm really down on my luck, and I lost my job, and funds are short, and I need a passage that will encourage me. And here's Paul writing from prison in Philippians 4 saying, whether I have much or I have uh, nothing, I can be content in Christ. And that's a much more powerful use of a verse rather than, um, I use the example of like putting it on the back of your jogging bib when you're running the marathon or anything like that. So, saw a um, guy today on Facebook who 
deadlifted over 500 pounds, which is a lot, right? I mean, and, uh, it's right. and right underneath, and and right underneath, yeah, that's what Nika warms up with. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, so we, uh, but right underneath it, bam, Philippians four thirteen. Yeah, like well, hey, I would have been unhappy lifting. Hey, it, God, so. hey, what you take away from tonight is that God will help you lift five hundred pounds. Ready, go. <laughs> that might have been heresy. All right. <laughs> any any questions on context? Nah. If you're like me, then working out is a chance to be discontent. So maybe that's what he meant, but. <laughs> Nate's going to walk you through cross-referencing. All right, so if you brought your uh, study Bible, then uh, open it up for me. We're going to look at Hosea chapter 2, um, verses 14 through 16. Anybody ever read Hosea before? All right, besides Russ. <laughs> Russ, don't raise your hand anymore tonight. We Has know. anybody read Redeeming Love? <laughs> then you've read Hosea. Okay, yeah. See, see hey, that is background right there. That's cultural <laughs> context. Has anybody read Hosea? No. Has anybody read Redeeming? What is it? Redeem- <sighs> hey, Redeeming Love. <laughs> has anybody read Redeeming Love? Oh, yeah. You know, n- now I'm, I should have done my homework, right? Um, so, uh, hey, look, like Nika said earlier, a lot of these, a lot of uh, interpretive challenges can literally be solved just by turning a few pages, okay? In other words, and you'll see this uh, on your little handout tonight, whenever we're doing cross-referencing, like, let, in, let Scripture interpret itself, okay, as, as much as it can. I'm not saying that that's possible in every instance, but in most of them, it is, that is possible. So um, if you're looking at something, you're like, man, I, I don't know, understand what this means, or I don't know what that word is, or I don't, I'm just not sure, then, then, uh, then let your Bible do its thing. Because, and I, I made this point on the handout, um, even though each of the 66 books of the Bible are a unique book with a unique message to a unique people, they all, and this is the miracle of Scripture, is that they all intertwine together to form one grand narrative about God and his people. Okay? And, and that's a miracle in itself. I mean, just to see that, hey, all these books written over, over a long time, all right, some 1,400 years, um, well, really 1,000 years, um, and then the New Testament. So, yeah, a couple thousand years. <laughs> um, that all these books come together and they form one message about one man um, who lived in time and space, right? And so um, allowing, uh, understanding that, that there is a meta-narrative of Scripture, so to speak, this broad-stroke theme of, of, of the Bible, then you can look at one verse and be like, man, I wonder how this ties in and how I can gather information from other passages that are used in the Old or the New Testament that might illuminate this interpretive issue. All right, so we're reading along um, in Hosea chapter 2, which I'll probably ought to turn to. All right. <clears throat> Other way. And the Lord is uh, just to do so. All right, let's practice what we preach. All right. Um, Hosea was written um, in the northern kingdom. All right. Which at this time, Israel was two different nations. There was Judah in the south. That's capital city was Jerusalem. And there was Israel to the north, whose capital city was Samaria. Okay. And Hosea was written um, before the fall of the northern kingdom. Um, and so probably 730-ish um, B.C., um, Hosea is written to the, the nation in the north, which is Israel. And 
Israel over and over and over again, if you, if you understand um, kind of Old Testament background, they, um, uh, I'm going to take a few minutes to do this, but so um, Israel, even if you look at the geography today, um, Israel is, is constantly sandwiched between its enemies, right? That's the way it is right now, too. Um, so uh, Bashir Assad, the, the president of Syria, is, is to the north, and there's kind of a civil war going on up there. And then you've got Egypt to the south, right? And, and, uh, and it was the same way back in the day that it was just the northern kingdom. Instead of being Syria, it was Assyria, okay? So put an A, put an A out there, you're good. So Assyria to the north, Egypt to the south. And so what, and, and Egypt and Assyria were constantly in a power struggle with one another, and so they would come in. Well, guess who the buffer zone is? Israel. And so Assyria would push in and push in toward Egypt, and then Egypt would push back. And there's this constant like flow. Well, Israel throughout this whole process is just getting beat up. They're getting their tails handed to them, right? So the, the kingdom in the north, by constantly getting beat up all the time, they, they continued to make alliances with other nations to try to get these other kings to come in and support their troops so that they could hold off the Assyrians. You understand what I'm saying? All right. So, however, to the Lord who told them, hey, you don't need another king. I will protect you. Right. And, and, and not only I will be your protector, but what he's saying is, hey, I'm, I'm your husband and you're my wife. So instead of like prostituting yourself to these other nations by saying, hey, the Lord cannot and, and well, the Lord will not and even cannot protect us. So we've got to go over here to, to grab an alliance with another nation to, to uh, keep the Assyrians off our back. That was an affront to the Lord, a relational affront to the Lord. And so he inspires Hosea to prophesy. And the, the entire book of Hosea is about Hosea, a prophet, chasing after his wife, right? Anybody know her name? Yeah, that's what I'm talking Angel about. in the book, Sarah. <laughs> right? So I don't have a daughter, but if I do, I'm probably not going to name her Gomer, right? Um, anyway, her name was Gomer. I'm sure she was lovely. <laughs> um, probably needed a different name, but um, I'm sure she... Is anybody here named Gomer? All right. He's very sorry if it's you... Are. Yeah, all right. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, um, he, he is... Uh, um, uh, and anybody know Gomer's uh, um, occupation? She's a, she's a prostitute, right? And so um, she marries Hosea, who, just like the Lord, married Israel. Well, guess what Gomer does? She goes and prostitutes herself away. And the Lord, instead of saying, hey, go divorce her, what does he say? No, go chase her. Over and over and over again, chase her. Pull her away from the men that she's prostituted herself with. And this is a, um, this is a, a, a metaphor for what's going on with Israel and the Lord. All right? So this is a deep, there's a deep emotion here, right? This is the Lord telling his prophet to play out in, in time and space in a physical reality what has happened between the Lord and his bride, the nation of Israel, okay? who's constantly prostituted herself away. And so what the Lord ends up doing, and he does this through Hosea, is he's, he's telling Israel, hey, you need to repent because if you don't repent, then the Assyrians are ultimately going to wipe you out. All right, which guess what happens? They wipe them out. Um, but the Lord's calling through Hosea, he's calling Israel to repent. And so you, you, you get a lot of like, uh, you get a lot of relational language in Hosea and, and you get... 
um, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, emotive language that's very hurtful, like you've wounded me in this way, um, the Lord is saying. But, but you, you get to chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and this is, this is beautiful language. Some, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, right? But there is a part in it that we need some help um, in, interpreting. And so um, you get to it, and, and the Lord says to, through Hosea, he says, he says, therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Remember, this is the prostitute who's prostituted herself over and over and over again. Unfaithfulness has marked her. There I will give her back her vineyards, the ones that had been stripped away. I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days that she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You will no longer call me master. How awesome is that, right? Um, The Lord, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of things going on, and this is a theme all the way through the prophets, in the midst of judgment, in the midst of the Lord um, disciplining his, his, I mean, really, the, the nation of Israel, He is saying, um, however, it will not always be this way. I am going to restore you um, to the point where you will never again will you call me master. You will call me husband. This is is really powerful stuff. But you get, you're reading through it and you're like, this is so good, Ah, maybe a tear, right? And then in verse 15, I will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. Right? Most, most people are going to read that and be like, well, what the heck is the Valley of Accor? Right? One, it's a Hebrew word. We don't know Hebrew. What, is, what, is it, what does that mean? Right? And so there's, there's, uh, there's ways we can figure this out. So if you, have your, if you have your study Bible open, then this center section over here, and I know you can't see it. I knew you wouldn't be able to see it. Maybe you guys in the front can, but there's the actual text, and then there's this center column that has bold numbers with other verses in the middle of it. Can you see that in your study Bible? Not of hands, all right? Anybody have a study Bible and they can't see that? Sweet. We're 100%, all right? And then underneath the other line, you have a bunch of textual notes, all right? Notes from, um, uh, from, from that correspond to the verse, all right? But the first thing we're going to look at is that center column. So if you look in verse 15, there I'll give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Accor. Next to Accor, you should see a couple of letters. Do you see any letters next to the word Accor in your study Bible? Anybody? All right. One of them, like in my study Bible, I have an NIV study Bible, and one of them is italicized. It's an italicized A, right? And right next to the italicized A, there is a, uh, just a regular um, uh, character O, all right, those letters have meaning, okay? The, um, if, if this is the way it is, at least in the NIV study Bible, is that if, there is a, if there's a letter next to a word in the text and that letter is italicized, then that means that there is a textual note down underneath, above, so above the, the horizontal line, but below the text, right? So if you'll see there, there's an italicized A next to the letter 15, which is the verse it corresponds with. And then it says, Accor means trouble. Okay, so it's giving you, um, it's giving, your study Bible is giving you the meaning of the word Accor, the word that you're, that you don't know the meaning to. All right, so now we can say, okay, well, then it should say the valley of trouble, 
All right. Well, what the, what the heck is the valley of trouble? Where is that? Right. Um, well, we can look now we can look into the center column. And if you'll look um, next to the O so, or uh, well, I don't know anybody has the same study Bible, but if you'll if you'll whatever letter is not italicized, go look in the center column. And next to mine, um, my O says C Joshua seven twenty four and twenty six. Are you guys tracking with me? Anybody is anybody totally lost? All right, you are sweet. Bam, hang on for a second. We got time, so I'm gonna do this. <clears throat> this is the um, recovery Bible, and it's just not the same. Yeah, you're right. That's not the same. Okay. This I'll isn't a study Bible. It is a recovery Bible. Okay. Well, I'll, so I'll you might recover, but it's not going to help you study. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just messing with you. It's fine. <clears throat> you got anything so far? Am I jacking this up? No, you're great. All right. So, um, so anyway, so the, this is the actual, the, this column in the center is, is where you do your cross-reference. Okay. It's telling you where this word shows up in the rest of Scripture. All right. So it says, see Joshua um, chapter seven, verses 24 and 26. All right. So let's turn there. Here's Joshua seven. Same Bible. So turn with me in your Bible to Joshua chapter seven. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. All right. So it tells me to read between verses 24 and 26. So I'll read that. Then Joshua, together with all of Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, to the valley of Accor. Hey, there it is. All right, sweet. Now, now we're tracking. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? Hey, what does Accor mean? Trouble, right? So... There might be a little wordplay here. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Why well, have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Again, when we're, if we're looking at observation, what word, what word is being repeated? A core, which in Hebrew means trouble. And then, in, and then it says it again two more times, right? So we probably ought to pay attention to that. Um, just using our observation skills that we learned last week. Then all of Israel stoned him. And after they stoned the, stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Accor ever since. All right. So now, if we're doing context, remember, we're doing all these at the same time to determine this universal principle, this meaning, right? If we're doing context, then what should we probably do? Not just read verses 24 to 26, right? We need to understand what's going on here. All right. So... You, you should probably go over um, previous to even chapter 7 to um, maybe chapter 6. And, and the, uh, uh, what's happening is, is Israel crosses the Jordan River and, and uh, are, uh, they take over Jericho pretty easily. Like they just shout at them and the walls come down. It's like, well, that was easy, you know. And then, um, and then they go to the next town that's not near as fortified or large as Jericho called Ai. And they're like, oh, whatever, dude. We'll just send like a squad up there and they'll take care of those dudes, right? So they send part of the army and they get slaughtered, right? So then they come back and, and they're like, hey, what have we done? And the Lord reveals to the leadership in Israel, hey, something has gone wrong. You guys have not done this my way, right? And so they reveal this that Achan, right, whose name is a wordplay on trouble, 
um, has actually stolen from Jericho and hidden these treasures in his tent, right? And so um, now the Lord is saying, hey, you have, because you've rebelled against me and my clear direction toward you, then this has brought trouble on the nation of Israel, right? Um, and so we're like, okay, well, now when Hosea says the Valley of Accor, we know what Hosea is talking about. So for a Jew who's reading this and they understand Jewish history, in Hosea, when they read, um, I will allure her, I will, uh, I will draw her into the desert and give her back her vineyards, um, I will make the valley of Accor, this place where there was sin and where there was rebellion and where there was um, theft and hoarding of a treasure and, and things that were totally rebellious against the Lord, God says, I will make that place, what? A doorway of hope. What? <laughs> That's awesome, right? I mean, we're, so, so this, this universal principle, this, this, this principle that we're drawing out by doing kind of some cross-reference just to get, hey, where else is the Bible talking about this? Um, is actually illumining the text for us to say, hey, for Israel, and I think, frankly, I think, the, I think there is a universal principle in Hosea chapter 2. Um, I, I think the universal principle is, hey, what is, what is your valley of Accor? Where in your life are, are you like, man, that's my valley of trouble. That's my ache in sin. Right? And, and, it, and it could be anything. It could be something that you go to... Um, Regeneration for it could be it could be a um, uh, just a, the sowing the seeds of bitterness and discord in your marriage. It, it could be just strife. It could be anything. You you know it's your life, right? What is your valley of trouble? What is your valley of trouble? And and the Lord is saying, hey, you hang with me because what I do with people is I take their trouble and I make it their doorway of hope. Right? That's the truth. And that truth is true all the time. The only one that can take your aching sin and your heap of trouble and, and, and literally not only get you out of it, but make that the thing that is, that is the doorway and the, the wellspring of life and hope for you, the only one that can do that is God himself. Right? And he's shown it over and over and over again that, hey, I'm going to purge this from you, and not only will I cleanse you of it, but that is your doorway of hope, right? Um, so, just a little bit of context can take a line that you would norm or uh, uh, cross reference. Just a little bit of cross reference to, to gain some understanding of what the scripture is talking about can take a line that you would normally just be like, "Oh, the Valley of the Core is a door of hope." Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I don't know what that means, but sweet, I'm for it. You know. Um, instead, you're like, "Man, this is this is like deep emotional meaning that the that the Lord is speaking through His prophet to to a nation that He loves, right?" And guess what? He sends them off into exile, <laughs> so it's trouble. But um, under Cyrus, he brings them back. Right? And he restores them and is continuing to restore them. Um, and, and ultimately, as we have been, as we as Gentiles, unless there's any ethnic Jews here, um, we as Gentiles are being grafted into this um, so that we too share in the inheritance um, of, of the people of God. All right? Any questions about cross referencing? All right. Another note um, if you'll look, if you go back to Hosea, if you'll look at. Uh, too far. 
if you look down at the bottom, some of you guys, some of this might seem like, well, duh. Um, but this, the line, um, the horizontal line, and then there's text below that. Um, so those are always pretty helpful um, study notes. The, probably the best Bible out there that has the most comprehensive study notes and translator notes. So they'll translate something a certain way, and then they'll write like a paragraph this long on here's why we did that, right? Um, and and uh, is called the Net Bible, the New English Translation, Okay. Um, it's a committee of guys down at Dallas Seminary that put that together, and by far, it blows out all the other study Bibles. It blows it out of the water, you know. So if you are interested in those kind of things and you do want to do some more serious study, that's definitely the one to get. But if you get just a, like this one's the NIV Study Bible, it's going to tell you, you know, uh, the note on 215 there says, Valley of Accor is near Jericho. See Joshua 724 through 26. Isaiah 6510 also references that. So does uh, 1 Chronicles references Achan's sin and talks about the Valley of Accor. Um, as the prophet reversed the meaning of the names of his children, so also the meaning of Accor, um, which means trouble, where God first judged his people in the promised land, it becomes a symbol of a new opportunity. All right? it, it's a doorway of hope. And so that's the study note that's underneath that passage. So as you're reading along, then you can cross-reference with that column in the middle, but you can also gain more insight to, with using the text that's underneath the horizontal line. Okay? Everybody tracking with me? Yeah. This is the NIV Study Bible. It, uh, a lot of people around Watermark use the ESV Study Bible. Um, NIV Study Bible, NASB Study Bible, the Net Bible, all these are good, solid study Bibles. All right. Do what? The Net Bible, this is the good thing about the Net Bible, is uh, as its name alludes to, um, it's, it's free, it's online. So, um, and Michael will talk about that in a second. Actually, anybody got any other questions about this? The, what do you mean? It's, it's, a, it's totally unto itself. No, it's a, it's a translation unto itself. Yep. Any other questions before we move on? Okay, sweet. Micah's going to tell you. A, oh, wait, we got an exercise. Sorry. Sorry, no, I scared Micah. Um, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 62. And we're going to give you about five minutes, but here's what I want. Um, this, is a, this is, I want you to use your, your skills, all right? Show us your skills and figure out, hey, what's the context here? And then what is this, what is the, there's someone who's, this is a quote, the verses. What, the person who is speaking, what is he talking about? What is he alluding to, all right? So take about five minutes and, and then we'll, uh, we'll get somebody, you guys to give us your awesome answers, all right? Yeah, right. Okay. That wasn't 30 seconds, but it was probably like 12. <laughs> um, who wants to share with us? Anybody find anything cool? Nobody wants to grab the mic? Okay, cool. What's your name, man? Dwight. Here you go, Dwight. Teach us, brother. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, Mine said, uh, referenced Exodus 3.14, okay. which is where uh, God uh, comes before Moses and says, I am. Yeah. And so when Jesus is saying, I am, I don't know if it's saying that he used the same wording. I didn't get deep enough to that, but it seems to be pretty profound that he's saying, I am, or I, I believe it would translate like Yahweh, something similar. Yep. Good. 
Good. It's great, man. Anybody else? Who else got some stuff out of that? Got somebody in the back. Cross-reference here. Where are we at? Oh, there you are. Hang on. What's your name? Rochelle. Rochelle. Teach us, Rochelle. Mine referred me to two other areas of the gospel, uh, one in Luke and one in uh, Matthew, okay. that basically uh, told of the same events where he was brought before the Sanhedrin, and yeah. the testimonies of the false witnesses weren't corroborated. Yeah. So they were only able to accuse him of blasphemy when they asked him who he was, and he said, I am, so yeah. man will sit by the Father. Yeah, so, that's great. And then it also, um, it also elaborated more about... Uh, how many phases his trial took and how many times he appeared before Pilate and how Pilate kicked it back because it was Herod's jurisdiction. And yeah, so good. On. So, and uh, how Rome didn't really see what uh, the Sanhedrin and uh, Capus were trying to accuse him of as a crime under their law. Yep. And that's why uh, Pilate basically made the Jews decide. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. Cool. Yeah, there's a sense to that because um, Jesus at his trial um, mostly keeps his mouth shut, right? And the witnesses, like you said, can't agree on anything. They're contradicting one another. So, and this is an interesting point, right? In order for Jesus to go to the cross for our sins, he has to help them convict him, right? And, and, and that's what he does. Um, and you're right, um, the guy before, um, he's, he's making a claim to uh, deity, right? All right, who, who else? Somebody else? Oh, Russ. Come on, Russ. All right. The study note says, uh, this son of man saying brings together Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110 verse 1. Mm -hmm. what, what do those say? Daniel 7.13 is an account of a vision that Daniel has. It's, it's very, very strange. It's a very strange vision. But in verse Daniel 7 verse 13 it says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Verse 14 says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then Psalm 110, verse 1, there's an interesting point in the Gospels where Jesus is debating with the Jewish religious leaders, yeah. the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he, uh, he quotes this verse, the Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand mm. until I make your enemies a footstool for your yeah, feet. Yeah. Jesus says, since he is calling him Lord, how can he be, what does Jesus say? Since he's calling him Lord, how can he be his son at the same time yeah, or yeah, something right, like that? Right. And the crowd listens to him with delight. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, all of you, all of you are right, <laughs> um, which is interesting because you have the I am statement, and, uh, which is Exodus, uh, um, and then you have uh, I'm sitting at the right hand of God, which is Psalm uh, 110, and then you have coming on the clouds of heaven, which is Daniel 7. And, and the Daniel 7 passage is talking about this son of man who's presented before the Almighty, and, and, the, and the Almighty, or the Ancient of Days, gives him the authority to judge the nations, right? And, and people worship him. So here's Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, who's, who's kind of, according to the Sanhedrin, has caused, stirred up some trouble because he's gathered a following. 
And, and uh, these witnesses can't agree. And so they're like, hey, tell us plainly, are you the, the Messiah, the Son of God? And he could have kept his mouth shut, right? But instead, he takes three sayings from three different passages, and he says, I am Exodus, I'm Yahweh, right? Um, and you will see, uh, you will see the, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, Psalm, Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, a, a reference to, hey, Caiaphas, you think you're judging me, but really I'm the judge of the entire universe, right? And, and, and I'm helping you crucify me, which is, re- which is really what's going on there, okay? All I'm saying is just a little bit of cross-reference cross in passages like this takes it from being like, okay, yeah, I read that, I did my, my study for today, to all of a sudden, man, this thing is dripping with meaning, right? And so um, I just encourage you guys to take that tool and continue to exercise it, all right? All right. We're going to do word studies. The only problem with team teaching is then you have to follow somebody smarter than you all the time. Oh, my gosh, whatever, dude. um, Word studies, you know, this is a lot of fun. And back in the old days, I will tell you, it used to be that you had to own a big, thick book called Strong's Concordance or some other concordance. Um, and now that we live in uh, not the dark ages anymore, there's online tools, and so I'm going to walk you through that and make word studies go a lot faster uh, than, than how you would do before. But the main gist of a word study is you come across a word, and sometimes it'll be a really unique word. And you remember Nate last week talked about when you're using your observation skills, if you find an unusual word, to mark that down. And, and I'm going to show you in a second how you would look up a word like that. Then sometimes you come across a word like save, right? And you see it, and they go, hey, your faith has saved you. And you're wondering, does that mean salvation faith? Is that, going, is that person going to heaven? Does that mean it saved him from death? Does that mean on and on and on? Because there's a whole range of meanings for the word saved throughout the Bible. And so what we're going to do in the word study is we're going to show you how to begin to discern that. One of the things people like to do is they want to find the whole range of what save could mean, or any word for that matter, and then they stick it in the text because they think it's really cool and they found something really cool that nobody else has ever found. That's bad. Like every time you do that, (laughs) slap yourself on the hand. The author meant something specific. He did not mean for people 2,000 years later to figure out what all the different iterations of save could mean and stick it back in the text. And so a funny example of this is I had a girlfriend who found the Greek word for passion, and she's like, I really want to tattoo this on my wrist. And I was like, okay, great. She's like, well, you run it by somebody who knows Greek really well and tell me if that means passion. And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I run it by my Greek professor. It's the same word that also means bowel movement. And so I was like, take your chances, right? I mean, yeah, like, and I was like, hey. And so people were like, oh, you know, is he talking about it? And it's pretty clear in the text, (laughs) the difference between the two. And I was like, this is why you check all of your tattoos. So, um, So that's what we mean by that. Sometimes a word can have multiple meanings. And so the job as an exegete, your job is to go, what did Paul, what did Moses, what did Joshua, what do these people have in mind when they use this word? Um, A perfect example is you'll see Paul uses the word save. And most of the time when Paul uses the word save, he means salvation. When James uses the word save, sometimes it means salvation, sometimes it means to make well, sometimes it means to heal, and so on and so forth. And so your job then is to go, okay, I've got my word. I'm going to study this. And the first question you're going to ask is, how does the author use it in the book elsewhere? And so if every time in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the word saved to mean salvation, that, that means something. Typically, authors don't all of a sudden just switch up and mean a different thing. And so your first question is, how is Paul using this word in, in this book or whatever author, whatever book you're studying? How is John using the word light? How is John using the word day? So on and so forth. 
And then you'll back it out and go, okay, how in the other books does the author use that? Because if at no point anywhere does uh, Paul mean save, mean to like throw a, a life ring out into the ocean, that's probably not a fair assumption for you to make. If at no other place at all in Paul's writing does he have a meaning for save that you have made up or you think it could possibly mean, then the burden of proof rests on you to really prove your point. And then you back it up even more and go, how does the rest of the Bible use the word? So where this comes into play, sometimes people will take a modern day understanding of a word and infuse it back into the text. Okay, and so they'll have a word um, that means, you know, it might mean, uh, this is an example I'm going to use, so dunamis, it means power, right? It means powerful, and it's from that word that we get the word dynamite. But Paul, writing in the first century, could not have possibly understood dynamite when he was writing. It was invented pretty recently, like within the last 100 years. So it is not fair to say in Romans 1 that the power of the gospel is dynamite, right? That is not fair to say. But you can say it's powerful. That's what Paul had in mind. And so your job is to figure out what is the range of meaning. And so there's two different types of word studies that you're really going to walk up against. One is where you're going to come across a word that you go, I don't even know what that means in English. And then you do a word study on that, like <laughs> Nate did last week with the, the umum and the thum and urum and thum. I was yes. like, please don't ask me what that means. I have no idea what that means. Um, but I do now, and I'm going to show you. And then you have word studies where you go, hey, this word can mean a couple of different things. What did the author have in mind? And both of these are going to go about the same way by using the right tools. The wrong tool is Google. The wrong tool is Wikipedia. The wrong tool is an English dictionary. Again, all of those are going to impregnate modern meanings into the word. And so the right tools are Bible dictionaries. The right tools are Bible concordances. The right tools are, are some of the things I'm going to show you right now. And so um, really easily, and these are free. They're easy to come by. This is called blueletterbible.org. It's one of the first places I go to when I'm teaching somebody how to use a word study. It's free. It's online. You don't have to pay. And the best part of it is if you look right here, you've got a tab that allows you to use a bunch of different translations. So you're coming along, you're reading your ESV Bible, and you come across a word, and you're like, I don't know what that means. Back in the old day, you would have to go find the concordance for the ESV. Well, now they've done the work for you and made it all digital. And so let's say we put the ESV up here, and we'll do the verse that Nathan did last week, um, which was Exodus 28.30, right there. And so you pull that up, and then suddenly you've got the verse right here. And what you do, very simple, you just click tools. And you come down here, and it breaks down all the different words. Now, one of the things to help you out is uh, the Hebrew language is very economical, so they might use one word, and it actually translates into three words in English. Like, English is way wordy. And then we add um and like and right to everything we do. So we, we use way too many words. I, I am a big offender, so I can say that. Um, but what this will do is it will lay out all the English words on the left, as you see, and then it will have the root Hebrew word on the right. And down the middle is this Strong's right here, okay, if you see where my, my mouse is right there. What this is is a guy with the last name Strong. Go figure. You know how we learned this? We Wikipedia'd this. Yeah, so, right. uh, I typed know. it, and Mike was like, that's great. I want that. I was like, well, that's Wikipedia. And I was like, never mind. Don't tell me. <laughs> uh, but this guy came up, and what he did is he cataloged all the Greek and all the Hebrew words. So what will happen is you might have a word you see in English, and there might be three or four different Greek words that can get to that in English. For example, the word know, to know something. It can be gnosko, or it can be oida in the Greek. And so rather than analyzing all the passages that say no in English, because you're not actually looking at, are you analyzing gnosko or are you analyzing oida? 
what you do is you skip the English middleman and you come and you click on this and it takes you straight to the lexicon, which is lexicon is just a fancy word for the dictionary entry, okay? Or lexicon is a fancy word for dictionary. And then here's the entry. And then right here, the, the Urim, right, the lights, there's stones kept in a pouch on the high priest's breastplate used in determining God's decision in certain questions and issues. So for a word that you're like, I don't know what that means, all you do is you click on it and it takes you right to the definition. And then down below, it'll list all the places that Hebrew word is used. So when you're going, how else does this author use it? How else is it used in the book? How else is it used? You can, that's the list of verses you want to use. Not Googling every time the word is used in English. Because again, it might not be the same root word. Mm -hmm. And so you can begin to make your list from here. And this is not that common of a word, so there's not that many. But if you were to use, um, gosh, the word save. So we'll put in Mark. Uh, 1530, and this is one. So that, any questions on how to do it if you have an unusual word? It's pretty straightforward. You go to it, it defines it for you. Um, it's pretty trustworthy. Well, then all of a sudden we do Mark 1530, and see how it says, save yourself and come down from the cross, right? Save right here. And I'm gonna click on Strong's, and it's gonna take me to the word sozo. Sozo can mean a lot of different things, okay? It's the Greek word save, and it's a, it's a big word. It can mean to deliver from evil. It can mean to literally remove from a dangerous situation. It can mean salvation. It can mean to heal. It can mean a lot of different things. And so what we don't want to do, like I just said, is figure out one of the ways it could mean and stick it in the text. Instead, we want to go and say, okay, how is this author using it in the passage? How is the author using it elsewhere in the book? How is that author typically using this word? And so on and so forth. And so what this does is, again, you can go down and you'll see all the different passages that use it, how Matthew uses it, how Mark uses it. And you can see it's a very common word in the New Testament. So if you want to do a word study that'll take you a month, pick sozo. <laughs> Um, and so that's, I mean, you'll see all the times that Paul uses in Romans and so on and so forth. So what you want to do is you want to get a list and you want to write out your word, you know, save. And you want to write out each of your verses and you want to jot down, hey, this seems to be how Paul's using it here. It seems to be talking about salvation, 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 salvation. And after a while, you're like, I think Paul means salvation. He's used it 15 times here and every time it means salvation. You're probably right. Right. And so that's what you, how you want to do your word study. And so this is a very trustworthy tool to use. The other one that, that Nate was referencing earlier, the net.bible.org, that's this website right here. I reference this often. If you're like me, though, and you don't prefer electronic tools, they do print this Bible. Um, I don't know where else to buy it other than on DTS's campus, but if you walk into the bookstore, you can say, can I have the net study Bible? And all of these notes that are on the right will be there. And so what, why it's helpful um, is if you go to Luke 18.42. And so you just click here, Luke. 18, and then we're just going to scroll down to verse 42, and I'll show you how they've made your life so much easier. I typically actually go here first. Okay, so Jesus is talking, and Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. And then there's this note, and I just click on the note, and see how it just goes right there? You don't have to look for it. Notice, Greek, the Greek word, he has healed you, is actually sozo. This word we're analyzing, it means to save. But what the net people have done is they've realized one of the nuances of save means to heal. So when Jesus is coming and goes, hey, your faith has made you well. He's not saying, hey, your faith has led you into salvation or anything like that. Not to say that your, your faith is absolutely what brings you into salvation. But Jesus means it's healed you. And so they tell you that. He has saved you. In a non-soteriological, that's a very big word, all it means is a non-salvific sense. The man has been delivered from his disability. And so they have done the work for you. Whoop. 
Um, and that's why I love this resource, is rather than spending all that time and looking at all the nuances, I just cheat and go straight to the net Bible, right? Um, for those of you who are interested, there are also Greek and, and Hebrew lexicons, which are Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. If you, get more, if you feel comfortable looking up the words, uh, one's called BDAG, B-D-A-G, and, then one's called, and that's for Greek. And then one's called Halot, H-A-L-O-T. They are very expensive. Uh, but they do the work for you as well. And so what you'll do is they'll, you'll you know, look up the word sozo, and the first entry might mean to deliver from, from danger, and then it'll list all the verses that mean that below it. And then it'll mean you know, to heal you, and then it'll list all the verses below that that means to heal you. And so there are, we live in the, in the world of technology. What that means is there are really bad resources out there, but then there are also very helpful resources. And so I cannot commend this website to you enough. I use it all the time. And then if ever you're like, huh, what does some trustworthy commentator have to say about you? Just click right here on Constable's Notes. And he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible because who doesn't love an overachiever? And so if you have a question, I'm like, I don't know how. He used to also teach at DTS. I'm like, do you How's sleep? That dude still I, don't, alive? I don't know if you sleep. Actually, when I went to seminary, that's when I realized I'll never be great. This true story. Because I'm sitting there talking to my professors and they're telling me all the things they've accomplished like in one 24 hour period. And I'm like adding up the hours. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, how many hours of sleep do you think you can get a night? And they're like, oh, like three, four. I was like, nope, I'll never be great. I will never be able to produce as much as you because uh, I need like eight hours of sleep and prefer like 15. But so, I will get some good sleep. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so just in summary, guys, what you want to do when you're in these word studies, they can really enlighten the text. And, and so one of the examples um, that to show you, John 17, 3, it says that eternal life is knowing the one true God. Mm. Eternal life is knowing the one true God. And so you look up the word knowing in that context. And there's two words for know that I, I told you earlier. One is oida, which means just to have knowledge of. Like I know that seven times three is 21. That's oida. Then you have gnosko, which means to know personally, to know intimately, to know and to, to have um, enough knowledge that you're like, we're, we're in relationship. I know about you. I know of you. And in the text, this is John's using gnosko. To know God, not just to know of him, not just an intellectual exercise, but to know God, to be familiar with him, to be acquainted with him in such a way that it's personal and relational. And then you, you begin to understand the nuance of that word and you go, oh, that's what it means to know God and to have eternal life. And so, you know, simply just knowing that a God exists, that's, that's not eternal life. But knowing intimately our God, that, that is eternal life, is knowing a God in a relational way. And so any questions on the word studies or any of the tools that we have here? I'll switch back. <laughs> what do we do before cell phones? Yeah. Um, I would say a couple of things. I think one, uh, I would say one, the Bible is sufficient. I think there are parts of the world that they have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and that is enough. Um, I think because of where we live and the time and the age we live in, we are very fortunate. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Mm. 
And as a woman, I will tell you, I am desperate for women to use their minds to know God. Uh, for so long, women have been kept out of the classroom, really up until the last 50 years, women weren't even allowed in seminary. And now that they are, I cannot get enough of y'all to go. I just want you to go and learn the Bible because we have commentaries, we have word studies, we have um, books. I mean, those are these things that they have pages in them. I don't know if y'all still read them, but um, so like even before the electronic media, yeah, turn the page. Because uh, like, you know, now like everybody's like, pull out your Bible and what do we do? Like reach for our phone, right? And um, and so, you know, in the early ages, there were books that were circulated, and people met in, in communities, and they taught each other. Um, and what they taught each other, they would write down, and they would circulate, and make copies of it, and have hand copies. And so, um, you have people that, from the earliest times, began to interpret scripture, and they would do it together, and go, okay, yeah, that is what Jesus meant. That is what we're understanding this text to mean. And, um, and so, you know, all the time, when, when anytime I teach something, I tell people, I, I'm really just standing on the shoulders of people who have already done the majority of the legwork. You know, they, they've researched the words. They've read the ancient documents that tell them all the different semantic ranges of a word. Um, where we get the Greek and the Hebrew lexicons from is they not only read the Bible, they read all of the resources they can get their hands on from that time period. And so they're reading, you know, receipts that they find in the ancient world. They're reading household documents. They're reading uh, Philo and Josephus, and they're reading... Um, um, all of these people, and they're going, how are these guys even using the words? So that they begin to go, we really have an idea of what these words mean. Mm -hmm. And so there's no excuse for us in the day and age we live in to be ignorant of our Bible. There just isn't. And so I would just encourage you guys all the more. I, I can't imagine just living in a place where um, it's the Bible and the Holy Spirit, but I know that if I live there that it would be sufficient because God promises us that. But since we live here... Uh, we should take advantage of this. We should take advantage of every resource that's out there to help us begin to know the Bible better because ultimately that's how we know our God. And, and that's what matters. And so, but to your point... <laughs> we think so What's your too. name? Yeah. <laughs> I heard him say we need a stage. raise. That's what <laughs> right? I heard. We're not, yeah, no. But in thank here? you Where for that. You? I appreciate it. Are there any other questions on word studies before we move on to the next thing? All right. We're in our last tool. Um, yeah. Yeah, sweet. All right, so validations. Validations are, uh, validations are interesting. So basically, what, what this is, is, is you've, you've done your, you've done your uh, observation, you've read the text, you've done your background, you've done your cross-reference, you've done your word studies, you're pretty, you've, you've got a good sense of what this passage is talking about. Um, and, and yet, there are some times when there are instances where um, you'll look at one study Bible that'll say one thing, and another study Bible will say something totally different, right? Not totally different, but just a nuanced meaning. And you're kind of like, well, which one is it, right? Um, for, for passages that have multiple um, types of interpretation to them, um, you're going to get guys out there that disagree with one another. All right? So what a validation is, is when you come to the text and you say, hey, this is not, I've done, I've done the observation, I've done all of those things, used my tools, it's great. Um, I still don't have a ton of clarity about a phrase or, or exactly what this is talking about, and I'm struggling with the meaning of it. Okay? So what a validation does is 
um, if I was going to do this, and we're going to do this here in a second, but if I was going to do this, then you first thing you do is you identify what the problem is. So if I'm doing it for myself, then I'll type out a little paragraph. Hey, this is exactly what the issue is. Um, or if you're taking notes, you know, by script, then just write it out. Um, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says this. You're just identifying this is the issue. Then, then what's helpful is, again, and, and we, we've kind of left this toward the end because we don't want you guys to just like immediately jump to this step, okay? There's a lot of preceding steps that you need to go through, namely observation and all that other stuff we were talking about. But you can get to the point where you're like, hey, people, like Nika said, are way smarter than me and have been doing this a lot longer than me and have written books about this, Right? And so um, those books that really smart people write about Scripture are called commentaries. Anybody got commentaries? All right, handful of people. Um, you can buy like entire sets of commentaries for the entire Bible, okay? Um, a, lot of, a lot of commentary series have most uh, books of the Bible with the commentator that's written a book about that. Some of the books of the Bible are missing out of the series, but, you know, you get the point. There's commentaries out there about every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And so what I would do is I would say, well, hey, uh, this guy's uh, written a commentary. This guy's written a commentary. This guy's written a commentary. So I can go and take that commentary, open it up to that passage that I'm struggling with, and it will tell me here are the various views on, and of, that, that people use to interpret this passage. And then I'm able to say, okay, well, these are the strengths and weaknesses of each one of the views and then we're able to look at that passage with this, with this kind of uh, newfound insight from these other guys that are helping us. And we can say, hey, based on the interpretive issue that I've identified and the various views that have been spelled out for me. Um, and, and again, you got to remember it as well. I mean, I, this is a process that's not like totally academic. Um, when I do this, um, just for myself personally, I'm also praying through this process. Like, Lord, open my eyes. Like, I, I don't want to be wrong about this, right? And, and there's various views, so I want to hold to the right one. So help me see, right? There's this aspect of the Holy Spirit, you know, illuminating the text for us. But we're also doing work, and the, the Spirit is moving through our work. And so then we identify, hey, which option, or is it a combination of the options, which a lot of times for me when I'm interpreting it, you know, there may be four different views and, and I may be, well, I think it's probably somewhere either a combination of one and two or somewhere in between one and two or something like that. And so then you're able to say, hey, based on my observation, based on the context of this, based on all of these things, I'm making the best guess that I can make about interpreting this and I'm landing on this view. All right. And then I spell it out. So um, this is a a really easy one, but let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. All right. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler. That's the context of the passage. So remember, it starts with the word, which, or the phrase, which in the phrase is eye of a needle, right? Then the broader passage or the pericope is, is Jesus addressing the rich young ruler and is saying, hey, the rich young ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, hey, go, go sell, or he says, keep the law and, and, and the prophets. And he's like, ah, yeah, sweet, I did that, you know? And I'm like, really? <laughs> but he says he did. Uh, he says, yeah, I've done that for my youth. I've kept the law. 
And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me, right? And so this guy, because he's rich, what does he do? He turns around and walks away and, and is grieved over the fact that he has to give up everything that, um, all this material wealth. And, and so his disciples begin to interact with uh, Jesus about this. And they're like, hey, that guy can't make it in. Who can make it in, right? And, and he says, hey, um, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for what? For a camel to move through the eye of a needle. Um, and, and they're like, well, then we're kind of, that's jacked up. Like, how are we going to get in? And, and Jesus responds with what? Yeah, with God, anything is possible. Okay, which is seeming to imply that um, with man, this is what? This is impossible. Okay? And so you, you'll turn to a commentary, and there, and uh, I, I mean, I bring commentaries for each of you tonight. You'll just have to take my word for it. All right? <laughs> but there's two guys who hold a, a, very, a different view on this. And this is a common view that I've heard quite a bit. One of the guys named, they both lived in the, uh, in the earlier, uh, earlier in the 20th century, like 1920s. One of them published a work in 1924, and his name was Abrahams. And the other guy was 1921, I believe, a guy named Dahlman. And both of these guys assert in their works about this passage that this phrase, the eye of a needle, is referring to a, to a really small gate, or really, yeah, small and short gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. Okay, And so they're saying, hey, um, what Jesus is alluding to, now, now we're using our background information, right? There is a small gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. And Jesus and his followers knew about the Needle Gate. And so Jesus is, is alluding to that gate when he says, it's, it is harder for a rich man to get in heaven than it is for a camel to move through what their interpretation is, to move through the Needle Gate, right? Um. And so we're like, okay, hard, and yet it's kind of like if the camel like calves and it's really small, then you might be able to push it through there, right? Or something like that. So where someone might be like, well, yeah, hard, but not impossible, right? Um, and so, um, however, if you open up any other commentaries, name, I'm getting uh, Craig Keener, Daryl Bach, these guys that have written um, other uh, commentaries on this passage, where these guys are asserting, hey, um, the fact that Jesus is putting a qualifier on needle, right? It's not just a, any needle or a needle gate. He's talking about the eye of a needle, okay? That, that, um, and in the context, Jesus is talking not about the difficulty of man to inherit the kingdom of God, but what? The impossibility of it. Not, not this is really hard for you to do. This is impossible for you to do. But with God, what? Everything's possible. And I mean, he's alluding to all sorts of this. Is, again, this is really rich with meaning. Jesus is not only saying, hey, this is impossible for you, but, but ultimately, in John, like John 14, he says, hey, um, hey guess what? I am, I am the way. Like, you want to get to God, it's impossible for you unless you come through me. Right? And so in light of the context and what Jesus is teaching in this passage, other than this vague allusion to a, a, a needle gate in Jerusalem, there's, there's nothing that would point us to or, or uh, make us to believe that Jesus was referring to that gate. Um, again, in, in their society, they had the same type of sewing, you know, obviously it wasn't the exact same, but, but the, the eye of the needle was very similar to what we think of it today. 
um, a sewing deal. And, and so what Jesus is saying is, hey, can you stick a camel through something this big? Right? And, and the, the uh, literary device that he's using there is he's saying, no, this is impossible. Right? And so if someone comes up to you and is like, oh, yeah, the eye of the needle, that was a gate in Jerusalem, right? then based on you know, what, what we've observed in the passage, what the context is allowing for, um, based on um, you know, uh, um, the, the best guess that we can make at that time is to say, no, I think Jesus is making a point about the impossibility of inheriting the kingdom of God apart from God. And, and that that is best seen as this really small hole that you might try to shove a camel through. Okay? However, this is also, if you'll notice what I'm doing, I'm talking about context. And I'm talking about not only background, but an abuse of background, right? There's all kinds of people out there that are like, hey, well, in the first century, they did this thing over here, and you know, we just automatically apply it to our situation in the 21st century. And so while, while Micah and I would tell you and, and even encourage you, hey, go read the background information. It will help illumine the text. You also need to be really careful, okay? This is not, some, this is not a lot of times, it's not a one-for-one one thing. Oh, there's a needle gate? Well, Jesus must be saying that. No, that's not, you, you, need to, you, you need to read, but you also need to read with a critical eye, okay? Michael, why don't you add whatever you want to this? Yeah, I was just going to say, so what he's, what he's demonstrating is validations are sort of the bow that ties it all together. And so you've got, you know, background studies, you've got context, you've got, and you're weighing all of your evidence. And so he keeps saying best guess. And, um, and really what you're doing is, rather than guessing, is you're just taking a critical approach and going, I've done the background study, there is a gate that exists. Okay, I'll take that into consideration. Um, there, but I've done a word study. You know, one of the things, you might do a word study on needle and go, no, no, that, he meant needle. There's no other definition of needle. That's what he meant. Or, um, and then you might do, you know, cross-referencing, see if there's any other place, which that's what Nate did. Those were the other places. Those passages were, were named. He put it up there. And, and then context is almost always king. Okay, so if you're not sure, lean towards context. And you weigh all of that, and that's what a validation is. It mm-hmm. says, okay, in the light of all of this evidence, Here's, here's the best interpretation we've got. And, and great scholars will also understand the other interpretation. Yep, so I'm, yep. not, I'm not angry when somebody's like, oh, it's a gate. I'm like, oh, hold on, let's just make sure we weigh everything out here. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are some problem passages where you're like, hey, that's one interpretation of it, here's another, you know, and you need to know like, who are the authors that ascribe to one view, who are the authors ascribe to another, and you're, you're looking at the evidence and going, I'm making the best objective decision I can make in light of weighing the evidence. And I would just say, and I think they would agree, if you're not sure, lean towards wherever the context is sending yep, you. Yep, yep. And that, that, that plays into, uh, if you'll look on your handout under word study, the last sentence on that handout, it says, um, Douglas Moo, um, who is, who's a really good biblical scholar, um, makes this point. He, he says, uh, never, ever, 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 ad nauseum ever, forget the cardinal rule of semantics. And that is, never give a word more meaning than the context demands that it have. Okay, I'll say that again. Never, ever, ever give a word more meaning than the context demands. And so, just like Nika said, love or, or save, sozo, might have a massive, wide, massively wide semantic range. But the context in a certain passage only allows for it to mean one thing. So when Jesus heals the paralytic, I think it was, um, hey, your faith has saved you. He's obviously not talking about a soteriological, eschatological, you will be in the kingdom of God forever, right? That, that is a nuance of sozo, but it's not the one that the context allows for. That context allows for a physical healing, all right? And so, um, man, yeah, uh, even with validations, I mean, you want to you do your best 
to, um, to determine that. And you want to be able to defend your view, okay, to where someone can say, hey, why do you believe that? Well, here's the strengths. Here's some weaknesses. And based on all this, man, I've, I've landed right here. You know, what do you think? Um, and, and, uh, and get after it. All right? All right. Any questions on the whole evening? We've got about eight, ten minutes. Russ. Go ahead, Russ. Yeah, there's, it's, yeah. Yeah. There's something that uh, my Greek professor told me in the seminary that I went to, which was Abilene Christian. He said not to trust every commentary. Yep. Because some commentaries out there may try to mislead you, or yep. you don't know the personal theological views of the scholar who wrote it, or... They may be on the left or the right, or they may be anywhere on the theological spectrum. Hopefully, not on the left. But he said not. He said not to trust every commentary. Yep. Yeah. So. so Russ brings up a good point. With anything, you don't trust anybody. That's what I would say. We're all biased, right? <laughs> so don't trust me. If you come to the women's Bible study, I might lead you astray, um, and I will have to pay for that when I get to heaven. But. Uh, <laughs> The point of that is, is everybody has a brain. You have to be discerning, which is why we say read multiple commentaries mm-hmm. if you're having, if you're wrestling through something. And if all four commentaries say the same thing, you're probably in a good boat. If they all disagree, you've probably hit a hot spot. And so just know that if no four commentaries agree on it, it's probably something that we've argued about for two thousand years. Yep. And so, hey, same similar deal. I met with a guy this afternoon who, who, I mean, had obviously done his theological study in isolation, right? And, and had all kinds of like fringe views that he held and held dogmatically. Why? Because he's in isolation, right? So he even made a point. He was like, you know, I think I'm the only one that holds this view. And I was like, that gives me pause. If I'm the only one that's like, hey, I, I hold this and I don't know anybody else that does, then you're wrong, okay? So um, yeah, man, hey, do theology in community, all right? And if there, if there is, are questions, then, then consult your, friend, your trusted friends. And if you know someone who's been formally trained at a, at a you know, accredited school, then check with them, all right? Anybody else? Write this down, bestcommentaries.org. They'll take you through book by book. And um, I would say probably 90% of the commentaries that they endorse would be something that we would endorse. And so uh, they'll tell you whether it's a pastoral commentary, if it's a highly technical commentary, whether or not you need to know your Greek and your Hebrew, so on and so forth. And so it's a, it's a website I reference uh, fairly often when I'm starting a new study of a book that I'm just, I'm just not that familiar with. Yep. I ask for, for when I'm trying to find a good commentary, I... I figure out who's the guy, who is the guy or gal that I know who is the, the best, most knowledgeable about that book, and then I call or email them and say, hey, which one should yep. I get, right? Um, probably the best one, I would say, and you may disagree, Nika, um, this would be a validation. Um, so probably the best one out there that is a good mix between solid scholarship and a pastoral like bent that's, that's more for a lay audience is the NIV application commentary. Um, those are those are well done, well written, but are easy to understand and are and are easy to work through from a layperson standpoint who doesn't have any kind of training. So I disagree, just for the sake of it. There you go, bam. <laughs> He's right. It's a good one. Any other questions? Got about five minutes. If you guys came in here stuck on a issue or had a question from last week or.
All right, the silence is spoken. Y'all have a great night. We'll see you next week. We're going to do application next week. So come ready to apply. Come on.